If you're tempted to say that Kathy DeAngelis is retiring this month as editor-in-chief of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, you better be sure to put parentheses around that word retiring. First of all, as an adjective, it might be the last word you'd use to describe Dr. DeAngelis, who is anything but retiring. And even as a verb, retiring might suggest some form of kicking back. And from what I can tell, Kathy DeAngelis isn't about to do any such thing. We're going to find out what's next on the agenda for JAMA's Editor-in-Chief come July 1 and explore trends that led to some of the publishing milestones she's overseen. So welcome to this edition of WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's director of communications. So much has changed in medicine, in healthcare, and in peer-reviewed publishing this past decade. We are truly fortunate to have the clear-eyed and no-nonsense view of Kathy DeAngelis to help us reflect on what impact these changes have had and what are some of the ongoing challenges. So let me offer a brief introduction and please take advantage of more information uh, about Kathy on our own WIHI webpages and you can Google her name and find out lots of great stuff as well. Kathy DeAngelis is editor-in-chief of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and editor-in-chief of scientific publications and multimedia applications. She's also professor of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Johns Hopkins has played a significant role in Kathy's career and will again, as we'll learn about today. Dr. DeAngelis has authored or edited 11 books on pediatrics and medical education and has published over 200 original articles, chapters, and editorials. Welcome, Kathy, to WIHI. Well, thank you for having me, Madge. All right, that's terrific. Thank you very much. Joining me in the studio is IHI's Dr. Don Goldman, a senior vice president whose own work in research in infectious disease and other matters on improvement has landed in the pages of many medical journals, including JAMA. Don, welcome to this discussion with Kathy. Hello, everybody. All right, we're going to get way well underway here. And uh, folks, as you're listening, sort of think of some things that you'd like to add or contribute to the discussion when we open things up at about the bottom of the hour here, and uh, questions, etc. cetera. Uh, here's, here's a great opportunity for you today. So, Kathleen, let's get underway. In preparing for this program, uh, I started to, you know, pull together some of the material about your life. Uh, these are summaries, and I'm sure of uh, where there's a great deal of detail. Uh, it's your story, in a way. And uh, I was thinking, well, nobody ever grows up and says, when I grow up, I want to be an editor of a prominent medical journal. Now, maybe, Don, that's changing. I'm not sure. But how would you describe the journal that got you there? Uh, was it a matter of of just the right opportunity or at the right time, or did you think it was destiny? <laughs> Are you talking to me? I sure am. <laughs> right. <laughs> All I'd say is anybody who grows up thinking, when when I grow up I want to be an editor, doesn't know anything about what an editor means. Okay. I think you have to have a screw loose uh, if you want to think that way. Uh, being an editor was the last thing on my mind. I did not want to be an editor. I was at that point looking at several deanships, 
Of course, uh, Dean is one letter away from dead, so maybe that's an equally crazy uh, career path. But um, And also the presidency of a major uh, uh, medical university. Uh, I, I took this position because at the time, uh, the... Edit, the then editor, like every other editor of JAMA except yours truly, had been fired. And uh, I was on the editorial board because I was editor, uh, which is a part-time uh, thing, with archives of general pediatrics and adolescent medicine. That's one of the nine uh, specialty journals that I also, uh, of which I am also editor-in-chief, but I assign a, a specialist for each of them. And at the meeting, it was clear that uh, when, when they put a search committee to find a new editor, uh, all of us said, look, you'll never get anybody to take this position unless there's guaranteed editorial freedom so the AMA could not control editorial content, which was the argument that, uh, that had been ongoing for a long time. And so they came up with the idea of instead of making JAMA uh, a limited liability corporation, which is probably the right thing to do, if that would take too long. So instead, the idea of a journal oversight committee, which is a committee of peers, uh, would be in charge of uh, and oversee all editorial issues. Uh, and that that would be part of the contract and the hiring requisites of the of the editor. Well, we came to the meeting, uh, which was an editorial board meeting, and we're told that the uh, the board of trustees of the AMA refused to uh, do that. And so at the meeting, I said, "Well, guys, uh, this is simple. Why don't we all? I make a motion that if they don't." Uh, allow a journal oversight committee, we all resign. Let them find 10 editors. And of course, the, the, ed the journals are a, uh, a, a quite uh, good source of revenue for the AMA. And so we all got up and walked out, I think much to the chagrin of uh, the powers that be. Has anybody ever written this up anywhere? <laughs> no, but it's going to be in the book that I will write as soon as I get out of this place. <laughs> Absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, to make a long story short, uh, two days later I got a call along with everyone else from the ch chair of the search committee saying, well, the board of trustees signed. We said, oh, great, we have a journal oversight committee. And then the day after that, which was a Friday, I got a call from the uh, search uh, chair who said, Kathy, we want you to be the editor-in-chief. <laughs> I told him, I said, you are out of your mind. And he said, no, no, this is the, who else is going to take them on and make it stick? And I said, no way. And he said, well, think about it over the weekend. So my husband and I, uh, we, we walk a lot, so we were walking around the reservoir in, uh, outside of Baltimore, mm -hmm. and my husband, uh, who's a psychiatrist, incidentally, okay, and he says to me, uh, Kathy, how many uh, deanships are there in the United States? I said, 125. He said, how many editors of JAMA are there? And I said, one. And he said, where do you think you can make the biggest impact? And I'd hate to tell you what I said to him because it's uh, 
it's for the book. <laughs> it's for the book, baby. Well, feel it, free to share. It'll be in the book, <laughs> okay. but I won't on air. I don't want us to get crashed out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> there, anyway, the I rest is history, up. I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and only under my conditions. All right. Well, that uh, is just a fascinating story. And here I thought we were maybe going to start with growing up in a coal mining community and uh, the road to, uh, you know, your your whole medical career, although that I'm sure will be in the book, too. I mean, I think... (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's all true. That's all true, right? (laughs) But but being an editor, especially editor-in-chief of JAMA, was not anywhere on the horizon for me. Wow. There you are. Are though so then uh, so your official first day was when or first uh, uh, what, 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 in two thousand? Yeah, it was uh, yeah. actually my birthday. Oh, uh, okay. I started officially January one. My birthday is the second, uh, but officially January one two thousand. I came in with the new millennium. All right, terrific. Well, what a decade it's been. And if you haven't figured this out already, this is WIHI, and you are having a delightful experience, I hope, already uh, listening to the outgoing editor-in-chief of JAMA, Kathy DeAngelis, who's on the phone from Chicago. So over the, well, it's really almost now a dozen years you've been at the helm. I wondered, wondered if you could highlight, I'm sort of hoping this program is in a little bit educational. People don't talk enough about sort of the huge things that have happened. Uh, we, we move on so quickly from uh, big events. But there have been some real high watermarks uh, while you have been in this position at JAMA in terms of just the research that's been published, sort of the topics. Could you tick off some of those? Sure. I think... Uh, the one that definitely was a practice-changing uh, publication was the one on hormone replacement therapy. Uh-huh. The, the original one absolutely changed how, uh, what and how women were taking hormone replacements. And uh, I wish I could say that it, that it, uh, that it was the physicians who took the lead in, uh, in uh, changing the way uh, they treated women uh, uh, at menopause and postmenopause, it was the women who did it, which uh, which also uh, makes me uh, makes me uh, very co- cogent uh, of and cognizant of the importance the JAMA plays not only for physicians, nurses, and and, and other healthcare professionals, but also to the public. The public reads JAMA. And or they and they read about it in, in the newspaper. So that paper definitely was a practice uh, changing. Uh, I hope for the better. I, mm-hmm. I certainly believe for the better. We've published some very interesting uh, information about obesity, which is a tremendous problem in the world now, but especially in the United States. We publish a lot on cardiovascular research, and there's a lot of changes that have occurred there. Uh, we're publishing more on oncology, on cancer, on mm-hmm. cancer research and treatment. Um, so those are the key areas, and we do, we do a fair amount about um, uh, about uh, psychiatry also, and of course a little about pediatrics, uh, not that much, but a little bit about it. Uh, we cover all fields. We're yep. a general medical journal. Right. Um, but I think the one thing that that we took on and and really uh, 
encouraged other uh, editors and other journals was the whole issue of integrity and conflict of interest. Right. That was what I was going to ask you about next, which is a great segue, um, which is that that this sort of has been a decade and then some of some really changing practices. So so describe what, what, what's come about, things that people might just assume or take for granted, and then maybe I'll, I'll get Don Goldman in here who has been, you know, tracking a lot of this too. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the, the whole issue of the role uh, that pharmaceutical and medical device companies play in research is, is incredible, and it's good. Please, let me first say that without the, the uh, for-profit pharmaceutical companies, the medical device companies, we'd still be uh, in taking the same medication as my grandmother, and believe me, that wasn't terrific. <laughs> okay. But, 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 what's happened is that, uh, oh, maybe about 20, 25 years ago, there are two, two sections of these for-profit companies. One is the scientific uh, section. And the scientists who work for these companies are among the best and brightest in the world, no doubt. But then there's the other section, which is the marketing. And they also are very good at marketing. Now, the scientists' job are to discover new medications, new devices, and they, as I said, they're excellent at it. Uh, but the marketing, they're, what their job is to sell the product. Right. And so... Uh, about uh, 20, 25 years ago, up to that point, m- most of the resources of the uh, pharmaceutical and device companies went to the scientific part. And then this change made was made so that the money was uh, sent uh, more to the marketing part, and that was because it took so much money and time and resources to come up with a new medication or a new device, especially the medications, that the uh, powers that be found out that it was much easier to make money by selling a product that had already been approved to people who perhaps could have uh, got along or, or could have, never in mind perhaps, absolutely could get along on a less expensive uh, medication and, and probably one with less side effects. And so the money uh, was diverted so that uh, private uh, physicians or any, any physicians were being marketed uh, the, the drugs and devices were being marketed to to physicians and other clinicians who uh, would prescribe them, and that's when we got into a big problem. And and since these companies were the ones that uh, well, about eighty five percent of all clinical research in this uh, clinical uh, randomized clinical trials are paid for by these for-profit companies, which should be, since they're going to make the profit, um, there has been uh, a number of cases in which there's been manipulation of these uh, studies and uh, to the detriment and to uh, the harm in some cases and in a few even the deaths perhaps of, of, of patients who took them. Kathy, I'm just. Yeah, I want to just make a very quick. Uh, uh, just uh, mention. Uh, I credit Frank Davidoff uh, for reminding me of this. There's a fascinating uh, article. 
uh, called Thyroid Storm uh, that people might want to look up in JAMA from April 16, 1997. I hope that's okay, Kathy. I just w- I don't want to forget to mention that, which sure. I, I think kind of uh, embodies uh, sort of the times and a lot of the issues. It was sort of on a, at a point of uh, kind of transition. But sorry, I didn't mean to break your throat. No, no, that was written by Drummond Rennie, who's still one of our yep. one of the deputy editors here. It was a story about the, uh, of Dr. Dong, who was uh, a researcher who uh, at the UCSF, University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and she did a study uh, that was paid for by a com- the company that made Synthroid, the thyroid drug, and uh, they hoped it would show that Synthroid was much better than the generic uh, thyroid medication, and what she found was that there was no difference. Right, right in price and, and side effects, but mostly, but especially price. And so the company was able to hold this up in court uh, three years before we could even publish it. And, of course, by then, uh, you know, three years' worth of a lot of sales. Mm. That was one of the first ones. So, right. No, I and I think that story is, is certainly very instructive. So tell us, um, just because I, I, would, I really, I think we are all going to be, you know, uh, on the edge of our seats waiting for, for your book, uh, but tell us kind of what, what kinds of changes. There. So uh, you and other journal editors began to get quite serious about uh, pushing for some different standards. Well, for example, one of the biggest things uh, that happened was uh, I belong to a group of, we're now 15, back then we were 12, um, excuse me, 13 uh, medical journal editors from around the world, but we represented generally the, the biggest or the most influential journals within our countries. Uh, and. It's a group called the International Committee on Medical Journal Editors, which is the group of people who get together. In fact, I just came back from our annual meeting yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one was in Ottawa. And and uh, we just got together, and we, we would try to come up with ways to try and uh, solve each other's problems, and we actually have uh, guidelines that we have put, put out that uh, many, many, editors and authors and reviewers uh, and readers uh, use uh, in in uh, either writing or or editing or publishing uh, journal articles and at this meeting one i this one was in croatia in in dubrovnik and i brought forth it wasn't even on the agenda and i said look i'm having a real problem because I have these clinical trials, and it looks like this medication under these circumstances works and that it's very good. But I don't know if this same drug were tried on uh, different populations in different settings, and because it didn't work, it was never published, Mm -hmm. even though the law in the United States at that time said that all clinical trials had to be registered. That was the law, yeah. but it wasn't enforced. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, you know, it would be really nice if we could do something to, to, to find out uh, what other studies had been done so that even though we would publish it and say in these 
under these circumstances it works. However, there were three other studies that uh, that that occurred and either never were published, uh, when we don't know why, or they were published in some obscure place and it didn't work. Yeah, right. And and immediately all of us got together and said we need to do something. And we wrote a joint joint editorial. And what we said was the only thing we could. We have no legal jurisdiction, especially we represent worldwide. Mm-hmm. So what we said is, if if the clinical trial wasn't registered, as soon as they registered the first patient, which means it would go online for in the United States, it goes to uh, the National Library of Medicine has a site, clinicaltrials.gov. Uh-huh. Everybody has access to. You could see what they said they were going to do and when it started and all the uh, ABCs of the study. So we said, if you don't do it, we will not publish your article. Well, you know, there was a hue and cry from the for-profit saying, oh, we were trying to, uh, you know, impinge on their privacy and all that stuff. And we, you know, we fought that all the way. And we refused to publish unless they they would uh mm. they they would uh, register and uh you know i i remember we had a a meeting at the institute of medicine and and people said to me well why do you care <laughs> i said excuse me i care first of all because i'm a physician mm-hmm. and if i'm publishing something that harms a patient it's no different whether i publish it and then many patients can get hurt or if I just give one prescription to one patient. But the real thing is that these companies are using my integrity and the integrity of my journal to sell their product. Right. And uh, anyway, the, the, <laughs> the, the rest is uh, just a, a, a good outcome because now everything's registered and it's, it's made a gigantic difference. And and it yeah. exposes a lot of issues too. Well, it's a great, uh, it's it's sort of a wonderful also story of change and 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 activism. And uh, as I mentioned in some of my uh, copy that I wrote up, mentioning today's program, uh, JAMA also goes an extra distance in requiring uh, independence of uh, statistical independence and other kinds of review uh, uh, to um, make sure that things are a- a- as they're presented. Um, I'm just thanks, Kathy. Uh, I'm going to just bring in Don Goldman, IHI senior vice president. He's kind of uh, at rapt attention, listening. I think he, it, it, from his perch in the world, kind of traveled some of this time period with you as well. Don, any thoughts on that? Well, I'd like to echo some of the things uh, that were just said because I find them right on point. I, I'm old enough to remember when things were very different, when uh, you could go to lavish uh, buffets with uh, vodka and blocks of ice and shrimp and even lobster, all sponsored by uh, a pharmaceutical company at the launch of their new drug, and there there were none of the registries uh, uh, that Kathy was talking about, and journals had virtually no uh, criteria around disclosure. It was a very freewheeling time, and uh, we do live in a market economy. And I, I agree that uh, the advances are astonishing, and it, and it, we live in a capitalist society. So I don't begrudge uh, the efforts of the pharmaceutical industry to uh, sell their 
products, uh, that that's okay. But uh, it, it just has to be a lot more carefully uh, regulated and controlled than it was in the past. And uh, for some of us who write papers for journals, uh, sometimes we look at the requirements. We say, "Oh gosh, what a pain!" You know, do I really have to disclose the the $700 I gave for giving a speech for some company that may or may not be related to this work. But but the paradigm shift has been rather than thinking this is silly, we now think it's a bit of a nuisance, but it's important. Mm -hmm. And JAMA has been really at the uh, forefront uh, in this regard, and I, I, I applaud it. Thanks, uh, thanks, Don. Don Goldman, IHI Senior Vice President. Again, it's WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan. We're talking about medical publishing and uh, you know changes over the past decade. We're going to open up chat in just a, a, a few minutes. Um, I want to get to uh, just one more little chunk of an area. We'll just spend a few minutes on this, Kathy, and then we can see what kinds of questions people have. But um, obviously, this is IHI here, and we're in the world of quality improvement. Uh, this is an area that ha- it continues to sort of migrate into the top-notch uh, journals uh, in terms of meeting standards. And I wanted to just ask you your, for your thoughts on um, the science of improvement and what kinds of uh, rigor uh, you look for in terms of publishing these sorts of articles and what sorts of changes have you seen there. Well, the whole the whole issue. First of all, I got to tell you, I sort of find it amusing to talk about evidence based medicine. I mean, everything we practice is evidence based. The issue is, how do you define evidence? I mean, we don't just pick something out of the air and do it. You you base it on something. It may be only experience uh, with with one patient, but that that provides a very low level of evidence. So that's why I, I, I smile with this phrase, evidence-based. But if you define evidence, then that's something else. And the issue is, I, I believe in data, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more data, the more you can show me with, with specific data, specific incidences, and the cleaner the data, and the more challenged the data, if you can show by all those criteria that something works or doesn't work, that's the kind of evidence I look for. Now, that's very hard to come by, but that's the kind of stuff we need. And the issue, the other phrase now that's really in is comparative effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, I say compare to what? Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're comparing something to a placebo... Chances are, yeah, that's going to work. You have a drug, and you say, well, I tried it against nothing, or essentially nothing with the placebo. Um, that's good, but why don't you try it against something that's already on the market, maybe generic and less and real, relatively inexpensive, and tell me how it how it compares with that. And uh, so. And those levels, I think, um, the comparative effectiveness works. The, the, the place that I have trouble is when they try to compare hospitals, for example, and they use, they use certain criteria which are great. In other words, how long does it take from the patient to hit the emergency room uh, who's having a heart attack or right. something to the get... cath lab or whatever, yeah, uh-huh. 
quicker to get to treatment or, or diagnostic mm-hmm. area versus um, somebody who says, well, this hospital, uh, when you look at uh, people with heart attacks, more die in this hospital than that hospital. Well, okay, but tell me about that hospital. Is, is, the, is the hospital that looks better one uh, that only takes care of um, uh, Mrs. Got Rocks and the other one that takes care of Mrs. Got Nothing? Uh, you see what I mean? And, and to somebody who's, who's yeah. uh, poor and waited a long time before uh, being diagnosed with whatever versus somebody who has very good health care and good nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's very interesting to me to see how difficult it is sometimes to weave out all uh, all those issues that should be used in comparing Hospital A with Hospital B, uh, for example. Right. Well, um, those, those are great, um, you know, interesting examples and provocative. Uh, Don, want to make any comments at all, and then we maybe we'll open things up for questions and comments. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I do want to make a comment because uh, uh, Kathy has provided real leadership, I think, in in allowing authors of papers to explain their new methodology. Uh, sometimes with more words than many journals would allow. I, I distinctly remember when uh, epidemiologists were starting to use propensity scoring, instrumental variables, stuff that I didn't really understand. And I, I was grateful that I could read a paper in the journal and there would be a whole column or even two columns explaining the methodology in a way that I could understand it. That's real foresight. When it comes to improvement literature, uh, improvement science in general, uh, again, uh, what Kathy said to me, she said, if they, if they send me a good study, I'll publish it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about rigor, uh, whatever scientific methodology is being done. There was a fabulous, I thought, paper in uh, JAMA just uh, the last week uh, on uh, use of uh, telemetry uh, in a ICU, where the use of visual uh, telemedicine, really, in ICUs. And it was a, uh, for those of you who aren't really that interested in specific designs, mm. I'll tell you, it was a step wedge design. Well, when we lecture about the tools available to improvement scientists, we mention the step wedge design as being one of the uh, good efforts to use if you don't have the luxury of a randomized control trial. And there was a paper well presented explaining this methodology, uh, showing a positive result with all kinds of qualifications about how this might not apply to your hospital because, because, because. Mm-hmm. So that that's all good. I mean, I, I think uh, somewhat of a canard to say it's uh, hard to publish good improvement work. You just uh, do it well and send it to Kathy and probably get published. Well, well, um, yeah, But you only have about 20-some days to do it. So. <laughs> I was, was going to say, <laughs> work work hard quickly. Pull some all-nighters. Uh, I do want to say one thing. Go, please. Go. Yep. That, that um, yes, we, we also, uh, for almost every one of, of the editors uh, who I'm so lucky to work with, uh, we've got about 17 of us. Uh, this, most of them are part-time. But we're all professors at universities, at medical schools. So we're all teachers. So part of what we do as editors is teach. 
And and that's why we, we will allow the extra column or two or paragraph or two to explain things that, that Don has, has just talked about. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of our job. That's terrific. Well, I hope there are some uh, students here, and we're all students in one form or another, uh, but uh, that's, that's a great thing to point out. I assume there's no quick way to explain step wedged design, but maybe <laughs> we can get it. We can maybe uh, throw something into the chat here, and maybe I'm, I'm one of the few who isn't quite clear what that means, but uh, we'll, I'll put a placeholder on that because I want to uh, get into um, questions and answers, but maybe we can throw something up on the chat that's got a nifty definition for that. So uh, it's WIHI. This is Madge Kaplan. You have just been listening to Kathy DeAngelis, uh, who's been the editor-in-chief of JAMA for over a decade, and Don Goldman is here with me in the studio in Cambridge. Kathy's in Chicago. And uh, we're going to open things up now for questions and comments. And uh, Matt is going to remind uh, folks who have logged on via computer uh, how you do that. Thanks. Thanks, Madge. Uh, the chat is now open, so please go ahead and ask away um, using the chat window in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Please do remember, however, to send your message to all participants so that we can all see it. Thank you. All right. Well, that was to the point. Uh, and uh, for those of you who have just joined by phone, and I think that's also true of uh, Kathy today, um, I'll, we'll be sure and kind of read out uh, every, everything that we do see. So don't be shy, folks. You know, there's got to be some stuff in here uh, that you've been thinking about, and uh, we'll give uh, we'll give folks. Oh, somebody's been writing away. All right. Um, let's see. This is from Paul Levy, uh, the former CEO of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I'm gonna. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to. That one, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna ask another question, and then Paul, I'm gonna. I'll take a look at that. I'll have Don uh, review that. Paul's written a, a few lines of copy here. Let me start off by asking one um, kind of quick, quick, quick question, which is, Kathy, you alluded to the fact that uh, when we were talking about hormone replacement th- uh, therapy and the significance of JAMA's publishing that work, uh, and um, the this to me at that moment, and I was a reporter in those days, I think I was sort of part of the world that sort of, you know, waited each week uh, for new material from JAMA, looked for the, you know, uh, the advance uh, summary of what's going on, what's going to be out in the journal so you could do your interviews ahead of time, etc. We are in an unbelievable uh, world environment of uh, news, and news flies around the world in nanoseconds uh, in, in this kind of digital age. And I'm wondering, Kathy, how you feel about how fast uh, findings move around the world and whether you think, uh, on the whole, uh, media are doing a good job, uh, or is it all such, you know, kind of cut up into little bite-sized pieces that sometimes the context and background are really missing? Well, um, I think it's important for news to get out very quickly and to get out so that not only uh, professionals read it, but everybody does if it's important. We spend $1 million a year getting our uh, our stuff out to the media. We have a, 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 a mechanism whereby 5,000 re- medical reporters from around the world have access to the kind of information you were talking about. We give it to them early. And what we do is we write up uh, the, the ones that we think are very important, 
We write it up. We have we have a, a professional uh, media professionals who write it, and then either my deputy or executive editor or I go through it and make sure that it's medically accurate. I find that most it's amazing to me most of the articles I read pretty much lift what we wrote and and uh, they they may add to it uh, or or subtract some things but they pretty much get it right because they essentially are quoting and we say to them here use it and we we also have uh, every week we put out a video news release so a lot of what you see on TV uh, comes from the video news releases many times without attribution. I don't care as long as the accurate news gets out. The one bug I have about the media is that the person who writes the headline mm-hmm. is not the reporter who wrote, wrote up the story. Right. So frequently, a headline, which is supposed to grab the attention of the reader, yep absolutely wrong it, it says the opposite of right. what the article says and and of course there are some people who just read they only read headlines right right I think that's right. bothers me yes that's exactly that's part one of the issues and sometimes it's that headline that sort of winds up becoming the story and the thing that's repeated over and over again by many um, Bill Steiger uh, editor of physician executive journal is asking you about something that's also been on, on my list of things to ask you about is which is your next act here. You're going to be directing a new center for uh, professionalism at Johns Hopkins. Uh, tell us uh, w- w- what what that's about and what what's in store. Okay, first of all, I'm going to be developing it. Before developing. I, so you before can't I, for before direct. you can direct it, you got to develop it. I, I get that. <laughs> well, yes. Well, professionalism. A lot of people misunderstand and think that professionalism is bioethics or is is ethics. It is not. It is way beyond that. You could be perfectly ethical and unprofessional. And the difference, the key difference is the actions. And I'll use medical professionalism, although the the School of Nursing at at Hopkins and the School of Public Health uh, are both. I have an appointment in the School of Public Health, and I have a background in in nursing, and uh, I just don't want too many appointments. But (laughs) I'd be working very closely with uh, all kinds of professionals, uh, medical and, and nursing and public health professionals. But let me just say medical professionals for now. A physician uh, or anybody, in order to be professional, it, it, and, and the differentiation between professionalism and ethical is if it involves a patient directly or indirectly, that's professionalism. So, for example, if a physician uh, says something nasty or or uh, demeans in any way, a, a nurse, for example, or a, a resident, that resident and nurse then will react differently to the patient they see. And that is unprofessional. And actually, we, there's a, a, there are some biological changes 
that have been documented in what happens when someone is is embarrassed, if you will, mm-hmm. or dressed down, or, or right. a surgeon throwing a, an instrument in the operating room. It affects the way that nurse then hands instruments or or counts the the number of uh, of uh, yeah. gods and stuff like that, right. and so. It's everything from that to the way a physician directly talks to a patient or doesn't talk to a patient. Uh, it, it, has to, it has to do with so many things. Um, and that, uh, to me, uh, that's where I think we, we need to be reminded because, because we've become so... I mean, even using the word allowing ourselves as physicians to be called providers, Mm -hmm. nothing aggravates me more than to have a physician refer to him or herself or to have anybody refer to a physician as a provider. I mean, I don't know why every Jewish mother in America is hasn't risen up in absolute abject anger. Can you imagine? I want you should uh, you know? Mary, I want you should meet my son, son the, the Jewish provider, uh, the provider. Right. Well, the <laughs> work. Why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because it's a demeaning term. Don, do you agree? Uh, I don't like to use the term provider or customer. Okay. When talking about clinical care. Right. Uh, sometimes I must say I get tripped up myself in trying to find the right language. Uh, when I have a clinical person who is not a physician and I don't know whether they're really a clinician. So it can get, it can get tricky, but it's best to say what you are, in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you have to know where that, where that term provider came. It came from uh, a law during the Clinton administration, and it was put in there by business. Mm-hmm. And they want us to be providers because it's, it's easy to then uh, uh, manipulate providers. And uh, anyway, I'll give you the reference for that, Don, later if you want. Well, I'll just make a quick uh, comment about this whole uh, uh, sort of deep professionalism of professionals. Uh, We as professionals trying to practice with professionalism need to be very cautious that we don't begin acting like guilds. Uh, as opposed to uh, people who provide clinical care, either as physicians or nurses or whatever, because it's a very very, uh, slippery slope to uh, instill a sense that we're acting in our self-interest and trying to protect our bread and butter rather rather than having front and center Mm -hmm. the the, uh, patients uh, and families for whom we care. So sometimes I think we're responsible a little bit for uh, that reputation. Yeah, interesting. Thank you both. Uh, I'm sorry, Kathy, you were going to say something else, and then I've got another question. Go ahead. That's exactly the opposite of professionalism. Right. We're not a guild. I mean, the last time I looked, and, and, and just the way we act, we have an MD, not an MDity. And, <laughs> and so as soon as you begin to act like you're, you know, you're something special, you're special in that you were endowed with the gifts to be able to understand and to become a physician. But and and that gives you a lot of, of power and prestige. It just it just happens. But you have to earn that, and you earn that by being responsible to the patient. I mean, I, I used to do well. I have been doing podcasts, and I always end it, no matter what. The patient is always the top priority, and for a physician, that's the bottom line. 
So this will be clearly uh, kind of the uh, some foundational stuff for the center. I'm going to ask you another question on that, but I'm going to digress just for a second because I don't want to ignore this question. Back to sort of publishing for a second. Somebody has asked whether or not uh, JAMA and the other journals might consider uh, making articles that uh, are particularly pertaining to great public interest or the public health, whether those might be more easily available, in essence, freely available. Is that something that has ever been discussed or it continues to be discussed? Constantly. Yep. And what we do is we take, we take uh, first of all, if, it, if it's an article of great public interest, like the Women's Health Initiative and a number of others, we make them free to everybody immediately. Uh-huh. We take our key one or two articles and we make them free for a week for everybody. We make everything, all our, all our studies free after six months, free to the public. Now, if I get a request from, you know, especially patients, well, the other thing we do is we have a patient page. It's mm-hmm. one page that's, that's written for patients. And we encourage physicians, we give them permission right on the sheet, please make copies of this for your patients. Mm -hmm. And we also, uh, physicians ask me frequently, well, I have, you know, we write something about, say, diabetes. And they say, well, you know, I've got a whole bunch of patients with diabetes who, we have this patient page, but that article that it refers to is, is written at a level where a lot of my patients can benefit. And I say, don't tell anybody I said so, but if you're using it for education, copy it and give it to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of people do that. So, I mean, the problem is I would love, absolutely love, to make everything we do free. Mm-hmm. The problem is it takes money to to put out journals. If I, if I told you all the steps that we go through for yep. the 6,000 manuscripts we get every year 6, to end 000. up with what oh. we have... right. It is expensive, so we can't do it for nothing. Okay, thank you for uh, addressing that, and that's an interesting area, I'm sure, for further probing. We have another question where somebody has asked whether the Center, and back to the Center for Professionalism, uh, will include teaching integrity, the person put it in quotes, <laughs> although maybe it doesn't need to be in quotes, uh, to medical students from the outset. Uh, this individual says we need to develop more thoughtful physician leaders. Well, I'm going to tell you that um, if you read my last editorial, it, but it's sort of the way I've, I've been leading everything, most editors... Uh, uh, we live by the by the IF the the impact factor, which drives me crazy. Because mm-hmm. the higher the impact factor, the more likely you'll get the best articles. Can you just quickly remind everybody what impact factor means? It, what it is is how many times your articles that you publish are cited by others. Uh-huh. They, in other words, they think it's an important article, so they'll, when they're writing an article, they'll cite your article as an important um, reference. So that's how, and that's the very brief and, and short version of how, how it's derived. There's a formula for it. But for me, I said, the IF that is important to JAMA has been the integrity factor. Mm-hmm. And I would say that if, you know, people can say anything, all kinds of things, but the one thing, if I were to 
say what what word do I want on my gravestone? It would be whatever else she was. She had integrity. Mm-hmm. I think people would say that about you. Uh, well, I don't know. They say lots of. <laughs> <laughs> Um, don't be shy, folks. Ask more questions. We're here. Kathy's here. Kathy, when does your so-called final editorial, when, which issue is that outed? It's out in the, uh, we, we do four issues a month. So yep. we have a double issue when there's five Wednesdays in a month. And that's the June, it'll be out June 22nd. All right. Well, we'll look out for that. That's terrific. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, as, oh, somebody, I'm sorry, Donna, I have another question that, I'm sorry, got lost in the scroll here. It, it kind of goes, speaking of integrity, um, somebody is asking, uh, they're referring to a particular uh, medical center conducting clinical trials. Uh, there's a lot of uh, taxpayer-fundedness uh, to this entire endeavor, and they're asking, why is it that they can charge these incredible prices? Well, you, of course, do not have to <laughs> explain all the, you know, so-called logic of our market system. Um, but I guess that continues uh, to, to be an issue, uh, which just has to do with what, you know, streams of money that come in uh, through government-funded research and others uh, that then come out the other way uh, as a, a potentially a very expensive product. I'm not, you can tell me if you if, if that's a little off the mark for you in terms of... Are you talking about about the, the cost of drugs? Yeah, exactly. The cost of what? The what cost of, a cost of drugs. That's what somebody has asked here. Well, yeah. Well, I, the, the, when I, for years, I've been trying to find out what is the actual cost of the development of a new medication, a new drug. <clears throat> and the usual figure I've been given is $800 million to a $1 billion. When I ask them to break it down for me, no one has ever been able to do that. But when I when I say, well, I know it doesn't cost that much. I just know it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And if it did, I everybody would have those figures right in front of them. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that almost every drug that's developed is based on studies that were funded by the government. Right. And therefore, why why isn't there some kind of discount? Now the the problem is. Um, you know the company. This is a we we live in a we're, we're a market and en- enterprise. Right. What our uh, that's what capitalism is. Now, if you were to buy, I was in China a couple of weeks ago, and I walked into a pharmacy. I could have purchased any any drug. I mean, anti-cancer drugs mm-hmm. are a pittance of what they cost here. Right. And and you could say, well, you don't know about the potency and all that stuff. That's true, but some of them had the same labels. Now, you know, I can't verify that it was the, the right drug, but the reason is most of the money that's made on medications are made in the United... It's made in the United States. That's because other countries refuse to pay the prices, especially, you know, the UK and Norway and Canada and the places where the government pays for the medications. They have, uh, they negotiate. In the United States, I wish that we would. I wish that uh, the drugs for, uh, that people get for Medicare, for example, or Medicaid, they, there should be some kind of 
um, negotiations. That doesn't occur. Right, right. Well, it's an ongoing issue, and um, it's fine uh, that we brought it up here. We obviously can't solve it, but I know it's certainly come up a lot in a lot of reform debates. I want to make just a brief mention of something, and then we'll kind of ask a f- uh, maybe some final thoughts uh, uh, for Kathy and I use final in quotes because <laughs> we'll, we'll continue to stay in touch with you. Um, just want to remind people that IHI is preparing to launch the second year of our Impacting Cost and Quality initiative. It is a year-long initiative, and it's focused on helping to reduce costs while improving or maintaining quality of care. And uh, collectively, 40 organizations saved about $30 million uh, in the course of working on this in uh, last year. So uh, we've got a new wave of the program starting this September, and we'd love to, for you to check that out. And the imp- uh, excuse me, the details are right on the website, www.ihi.org slash impacting cost and quality. And we welcome you to check that out. Well, Kathy, I guess uh, maybe just sort of uh, one final thought I have, which is I think about you and all that you've done over the years. And uh, in the domains where you've been, you've really wanted to hold various uh, people's feet to the fire uh, in terms of uh, integrity and other issues and transparency, honesty, etc. What would you suggest uh, to people who are tuning in now as uh, they kind of, you're, you're, you're moving on. We'll hear from you, I'm sure. I hope to have you back on the program talking about uh, the work that you're doing at Johns Hopkins with professionalism. Uh, but what kinds of things, what, what sorts of things should people be really keeping their eye on uh, in this world, particularly perhaps of, of publishing? Well, uh, actually, if if I might, I'd like to make a suggestion okay. about people that can help with this whole business, especially with with the cost of healthcare in this country. If you if you're given a prescription by a physician, and it's for something that's pretty expensive, why don't you please ask the physician why are you getting that medication? instead of a less expensive one. Just ask that question, and you would be amazed at the answers you might receive. Mm -hmm. And it might embarrass somebody into thinking about why they're given that medication. And it may be, and if someone hands you uh, a sample of a a medication, uh, ask why. Ask if then that means you then have to buy that medication later, which probably costs 10 to 20 times what a different medication that will have the same effect or or could work just as well. Asking simple questions like that, Mm -hmm. being a really good uh, consumer, if you will, at that case you're a patient of course you should be treated with respect but and you should treat the physician with respect but there's nothing wrong with questioning mm-hmm. okay and uh, certainly anybody who's in the professions uh, who may be prescribing uh, we're still in a world where people uh, are handed things in various ways or told about things and uh, it sounds like that that's the that group of people uh, p- physicians nurses, et cetera, should be thinking about that as well. Don, uh, any any kind of final thoughts from you? Uh, ongoing challenges for publishing? Uh, any, any wisdom? I'm glad you've been with us today. 
Well, you know, it's uh, it's hard to do uh, really good scientific work in the area that IHI is involved in, uh, but it's not an excuse that it's to say that it's hard. Uh, and uh, it's really a pleasure to have had Kathy at the helm of this great journal. I, I think I've watched it uh, become. Uh, can I say this? My favorite journal to read when it, it arrives. It's a bit of a say that again between several <laughs> journals. But uh, uh, I, I had it at breakfast this morning when my paper arrived late. It was my second go-to, uh, and uh, I'd just like to express the thanks. I'm sure a lot of people had to Kathy for uh, having the courage to publish new stuff and uh, uh, stuff that sometimes really does move the field. It's been great. Okay. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Let me tell you, it's been a real joy and, and a privilege for me uh, to be able to serve uh, <clears throat> as the editor-in-chief of what I think is a great journal. Uh, I just want to make sure that this journal stays great, uh, and it will as long as we have editorial independence. All right. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. I want to tell everybody that uh, right off the bat, uh, Kathy was so willing and excited to uh, speak uh, on WHI and be part of this uh, whole discussion. And we really wish you well, Kathy, and look forward. Uh, I'm serious about that, uh, bringing you uh, back onto this program and just generally hearing how things are going with your new endeavors. So thanks again. Thank you, and I'll come back anytime you want. Me. All right, so terrific. Next up on WIHI, June 23rd, uh, still in 2011, 2 to 3 p.m., new models for patients with multiple health and social needs. If you want to find out more about virtual wards and predictive modeling and care coordination and housing and just some really very, very interesting research that's going on with people who tend to be high utilizers of the healthcare system for both health and social issues, uh, we really invite you to tune in. June 23rd, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, that information is up on the website now, and you can actually enroll. I want to remind everybody, you can download the chat. It was a little light on, on commentary today, but always useful. Uh, any of the slides uh, uh, that we have on the program, when you uh, log off, uh, that option is presented to you. There's also a brief survey, which we always appreciate when you fill out. Any questions, what Whatsoever, email us at info at IHI.org and always feel free to suggest future show topics. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, Daisy Recto, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And John Godier is going to be coming on board helping me out as well as the project coordinator for communications working on WIHI too. So welcome, John. A reminder that we've got this fun music that opens and closes the program by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. Big thank you again to Kathy DeAngelis, Dr. D, Kathy, Don Goldman. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and in the spirit of integrity, as Kathy talked about a lot today, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. <laughs>